Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 326 The Biggest Losers. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. Sam is now back live in studio after a six-month hiatus, and Eddie has continued to be here, even without Sam. But I think the starting point that I thought most interesting is Eddie's 49ers, coming off 2-0, are now losers. My New York Giants playing the terrible Atlanta Falcons loss and only Sam's Cincinnati Bengals overcome the Steel City Pittsburgh Steelers and win. Who would have guessed that would have been the win out of the three teams? Me. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a lot of people, actually. I mean, it's not as if any of them were heavy favorites slash heavy underdogs. It was, it's not like well, the most stunning... Well, you didn't pick them, Eddie, so... I picked the Giants to lose, so I got that the right. To win, <laughs> I picked the Steelers and I picked the Niners, so I was one from three. But between us, <laughs> we picked every possible outcome that you have. So, <laughs> but hedging the bets right there. I, I mean, I, I I might object slightly to you referring to the Niners as losers. <laughs> I mean, they lost, but kind of classifying them generally as losers might be going a a little bit too far. I think when you don't win, you lose. So they're losers. Right. But losing doesn't make you a loser. In the, more, <laughs> in in the sense grand of the scheme word, of things. Like, if you continue to lose games, you're a loser. Or do you mean loser in terms of like, you love Star dweebs. Wars too much? <laughs> so you're, yeah, yeah, exactly. They're it's not like, dweebs. Yes. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Jimmy G is super cool, even when he doesn't throw touchdown passes. Are you more or less on the... Jimmy G continuing to start bandwagon. I mean, it was more of the same. I guess if we're, is this where we're just starting right? We're hopping right in here. It was more of the same. No, this is actually all you're getting of the Niners. So this is your chance. Okay. There were some good (laughs) things in that game. I think the second half, they were really good to come back from the deficit that they had Uh, there, but it's kind of feast or famine with Jimmy G and he misses a lot of open receivers. He makes a lot of dumb decisions He's, but he can make some really good throws at the same time, and he can help put together. He can kind of marshal some really good drives. So there was a, there were lots of positives. My feeling is exactly the same, which is they're taking their time with with and six or seven weeks in, you're going to see Trey Lance. But yeah, I yeah, I I, I think you're going to start to see him more and more after you know he came in a little bit and was an instant impact in that last game. So, but they also but need to they need to not fall into the trap, right? Which is he can come in for more gimmicky plays and he can come in there and you know and make a difference. But that's very different to the challenge of actually reading an NFL defense and yeah. working through your progressions. And we've kind of seen that this year so far with all the other rookies. I mean, our, the rookie quarterbacks so far have won one game. And the only yeah, game, and the, the only time a rookie quarterback won a game was when he was playing against another rookie quarterback. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it had to happen, basically. Yeah. And, and the, the stats aren't great. I think it's 
four touchdowns versus 11 interceptions or something like that, half of which are Trevor Lawrence, but still not not great statistics for the for the rookies. But we'll, we, we can get into the NFL a little later, but I think first we need to bring Sam in and, and hear about this epic four-week vacation he took, missing about eight podcast episodes. Double that you've exaggerated slightly, but what what I'm learning here is Frank's become quite dictatorial in the uh, podcast regime. He's like Eddie, you've got your slot now. Talk it. We're not talking <laughs> NFL anymore. Back to Sam. It's like wow, he's uh, he's running the show. No, I've missed. Yeah. I've missed a few. It, it's been good listening to you guys though, and how you somehow rip into me other opportunities. It's up on a platter, and you don't. It's 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 kind of thrown me off a little bit listening back, but. Um, yeah, it's good to be back. Have you guys missed me, Mr. Dynamic? Eddie, you can answer now. <laughs> I'm, that I'm, bit I'm... wasn't edited out, by the way. That was just silence. I'll make that silence longer in editing. Yeah. I mean, you should be happy, right? Um, you're bet one. You're better the week one. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been allowed back on. So I, I would have had the fourfold. I mean, I know the Thursday night rule yeah. applies, so fine, that's fine. But yeah, when when it matters... The squid delivers. So, yeah, I guess we're not getting Frank. We're not getting any exciting content from uh, Mykonos. I guess family weddings, maybe not the most thrilling events to attend from a story well, standpoint. This is, yeah. this is always going to be explicit, isn't it? So it's fine <laughs> if they do come some up. stories. Sam had a week vacation on a nice exotic island, and his story is my threefold that should have been a fourfold one. <laughs> <laughs> my survival on the podcast endured. No, I'll tell you what, you guys mentioned that it's kind of like well known as a gay island. I'm I didn't see it. <laughs> like I you really didn't see didn't it see or it. you didn't experience no. it. <laughs> two two sides of the same coin. <laughs> also, what are you what are you expecting to see? Well, you know, like <laughs> rainbow planes flying in, <laughs> like I want the whole thing. But no, you wanted it's like, to look more like Brighton. Brighton doesn't look that gay. But anyway, it Again, looks like what a million. Are you it, Only. Like, you see, this, I is, this is, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but this is where you do get into those fine lines of only a gay person could say what you've just said. Because mm-hmm. if I went on a holiday and I was like, it didn't look very gay, people would be like, homophobe, homophobe. Oh, what a bigot. Hey. When is it going to be the straight white man's turn, eh? <laughs> I know. It's been a rough couple of years, and I want to be right back on top pretty soon. <laughs> but no, it comes across, Mykonos comes across more as like a millionaire's playground. Like it basically looks like kind of Santorini. Like everything is like the white houses. Everything is ridiculously expensive. Like I went into one of the gay bars there, which is called Scandinavian Bar, which I asked about 10 people, and they have no understanding of why they've called it that. They just have. And it cost like 20 euros for a GNT. It was, but then there's a shop next door that serves the local beer for a euro 50. And so it's kind of weird. It's like, I, I don't know what it is, but yeah. Now is, it was good is fun. Tw- is, is 20 euros expensive for a, a grab and tug? Or that seems pretty fair to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of well thought out on the spot. <laughs> like, yeah. And the gin and tonics are even more expensive. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> But no, and then you guys mentioned that obviously came back to uh, have my flat. I, I'll use inverted commas, even though no one can say it flooded. It was no way as bad as the emails and that suggestive. But yeah, the uh, there's a bit of damage. It was a bit annoying. 
had to cut the power and things like that. So uh, not the best thing to come back to, but uh, here I am. So I survived. I survived a really tough holiday and some light inconvenience to my house. I feel bad for you. Were you able to keep up with Ted Lasso? I was. And that has been a proper Jekyll and Hyde few episodes that we've gone through. So as you, as you guys have said, right, we'll, we'll talk about Ted Lasso obviously in a second, but the last three in complete summation for me are the one just before I left or just as you guys were reviewing when I left was the best one of the season. The Coach Beer inspired episode was one of the worst, maybe on par with the Christmas, maybe worse. I just thought it was meant to be like a really awful train spotting and I just didn't like it. Nothing hit, nothing connected for me. And then we're on to this one. So I don't know if you want to go straight into it or... We should say our no uh, spoiler alert. So anyone who has not listened, be prepared because we will spoil it for you. (laughs) And with that, should we get into the episode? Yeah. I mean, the most emotional ted lasso episode so far and they're really tugging at the the viewers heartstrings throughout i thought it was pretty good i mean i think they're playing a lot of the notes that you know are going to go down well that it's pretty easy to do the father and son or you know child parent sad story and that as a viewer it's gonna you're gonna be able to relate to it in one way or another it's gonna make you feel a little bit sad it's you know and that's not knocking it but you would expect them to be able to do that pretty well and they did and there were elements that were kind of creative like but there were also parts of it that bothered me but overall i thought it was a pretty good episode so i know part of the reason that your score will be lower is because it didn't have any football in this episode at all, which no. you know, we talk about is, is that, is that side. I mean, but, that didn't bother me that much. The, did you know the only thing that really bothered me from this episode, which was the only kind of football related thing, the fact that they all, attended I know it's going to be the, the sneakers. What? No, that didn't bother me that much. Oh. The fact that they all attended the football match, they do they turned up in the team bus. The fact that they rolled up to a funeral <laughs> in the team bus. Well, I'll tell you what bothered me about that is they rolled up in a team bus and then everyone walks right by her without like condoling her or saying like, sorry for your loss, you know, giving like a, like a hug or a kiss or something. Well, everyone just like walks right by her, just like head nods. Like, well, they make hey, a, we'll they make a hour, play so on yeah. that though. <laughs> but they make a play on that though, right? Because when, um, oh, I can't remember his name, uh, he says like, I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to say what they said. So I wanted to say something else, but he just ends up saying sorry for your loss anyway. Yeah, but yeah, I didn't actually think about the team bus plowing up to a church. (laughs) And also, very, I mean, quick turnaround on the funeral from from death to funeral, very fast. But also, very considerate of her father to die during what clearly must have been an international break. (laughs) Because funeral on the Saturday, and they could all attend, so that was considerate of him. And he was a rich fan. And no Richmond players play international football, which isn't that surprising, I guess. Although their goalkeepers Danny Canadian, Rojas. Premier League team. You'd have thought Danny Rojas sure. might be making the Mexican team. Ooh, yeah. They are stereotyping him relentlessly, aren't yeah. they? 
<laughs> like it's becoming painful. Uh, highly disrespectful of church proceeds and processes, I think. You know, when they sneak a bottle of wine into where she's in the grieving room of sorts. Yeah, wearing... And just start talking about who you're plowing. Coach Beard wearing a hat throughout yeah. the... Um, also, too, it felt a lot like a an American, presumably a Catholic, writing about attending a British like church and a funeral. Because there were things that were just not consistent with going to, uh, for for example, she, the 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 glorious return of the thirteen year old girl, which is is what Ted Lasso needs more of. But she apologized. She said, "Sorry, father," at one moment, and you just he'd oh, be a vicar. You wouldn't be calling him be a father. Vicar. Even yeah, I know that. Just... <laughs> After calling her a. After calling her a boss ass bitch, yes. he said sorry for yes. It's like yeah. it didn't, that, was actually they, that bit didn't land. I thought that was kind of funny when she said that. Oh, I, overall... I just honestly can't get out of my head though. The team bus parking near the graveyard is making me laugh more and more. Like almost some beeping as they come along as well. <laughs> and then do they just camp out there and wait for it to end? Like they're just in front of the church the whole time, waiting well, you for see, everyone to yeah. come back in. You see it at the end, right? Because Ted Lasso yeah. then doesn't, because he goes home with Sassy. What does she go by? Sassy. Yeah. But yeah, they just pile back onto the team bus, which presumably is then taking them back to the the ground. And then from there, they're then all making their way home. It's just not a, it's, it's not logistically very sensible, but it's also, I think, mildly disrespectful too. Also, to have this big red team bus pull up right outside the church, but or also bringing the bottle of wine into the church as well pre-funeral to talk about the guy you're sleeping with. She didn't that bring it; she stole it from the I don't know oh, an altar boy. I don't yeah, know she, she said in, in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> it's God's. So as long as it's God's wine yeah. or like jesus the, the blood of the savior yes yeah, the blood of christ the, that they were drinking the thing i didn't the thing that struck me is like is ted lasso at his best not him person not him himself but is the program better when it's sad because now at the moment whenever they have the moments of like when jason sudeikis is doing like a really good performance in my opinion with the therapist talking about like the the father-son relationship he had or when he first opens up on the phone call with the therapist and, you know, when now that um, I can never remember the owner's name, but what, like when she opens up with her mother, it's felt like all the four or five episodes where they have created those poignant moments, like in um, season one, episode five, you know, where Ted and Coach Beer have that drink wow. and it's quite a sad moment okay. when they have the divorce. The episodes memorized. That's impressive. Yeah, it's great. It. I just think it's better when it's, serious in a way so i think why that works it works well because you have the contrast then between the sadness of the episode with a fundamentally happy premise and fundamentally happy and cheerful people so ted lasso becomes a more compelling character himself because you have the smiley happy everything is always going to be fine you know everything's positive but then you're seeing the kind of second layer to his personality. And then you're also seeing him try to battle the sadness of the situation with his overall happy approach to life. And it makes him kind of a more realistic character in the process because 
the real life version of him just can't exist. Just the constant nonstop cheerfulness, happiness, pop culture references all the time. So I do, they just need to not overdo it. It just, not everyone needs to have a really sad backstory and we don't have to feel as if let's learn more and let's try and process every possible major situation of human struggle and grief through this football team being managed by an American. Yeah. I I think it makes the show feel a little more realistic too, because a lot of times what you get with comedies is that they're just so unreal. Like, I, I mean, I love the office. It's one of my all time favorite shows, but it is so unrealistic in every sense of the way. Like there's no way Michael Scott is still working after the first three episodes, you know? So the fact that they have some real life emotions makes it a more realistic premise in some ways. And it makes it more, I think relatable. Therefore like it becomes a better comedy. I, I mean, I personally, I think this is one of the better episodes overall. There was a lot of good random little jokes tied in with some serious moments. The performances I thought were really good. Uh, Jason Sudeikis was really, really good. The, I mean, Roy Kent is still crushing it. The, that opening scene with the, um, with, uh, Keely and they're talking about what what he would like to do when he dies if he's hit by a bus and he's like you're gonna go and get that bus driver like that whole part I thought was pretty good and then when she's like I didn't I want to I want to be buried and he's like no I'm not gonna eat eat your apples it's I didn't disgusting I didn't find the chasing down the bus driver bit to be that that to me is when they lean too hard into the Roy Kent character I did like yes. the bit about eat, the disgusting aspect. And when he made the yeah. joke of eating the apple that tasted like dead people when he came into the church, yeah. that was a good joke. But yeah, yeah I think it, I think you're a big Roy Kent fanboy, right? And you just eat up anything he says. I find at times they just go a little too hard into the here he is, un, like no emotion robot of swearing. And occasionally it's just it it's too predictable and then they do yeah. the opposite thing where they then completely flip who he is for certain episodes and suddenly he's this emotional mess who's a little too you know in touch with the sort of softer side of his personality all of a sudden but well if, i, I, I think it was... the person who's flipped though in in these last few is coach beard that was a character that i genuinely enjoyed and now that his standalone episode didn't hit with me. And now this one where he's like FaceTiming his girlfriend. Oh, and I think you get that implication that they then were going to like have phone sex. Cause she was turned on that he was in the church. Did, yeah. Did, it, did you read it, it into that the, as well? Like that was, that was really in, strange. In the very least, it was getting like a sick level of pleasure out of other people's grief, which again, seems inconsistent with his original part of him as a character yeah. which he seemed like a very sort of as unemotional as well as he was he was a sort of steadying influence on ted lasso yeah. and he was there as the yeah. sensible high, reliable. high morals respectable exactly yeah and then now it's like oh you're kind of a dick because if I if if I was at my funeral, like my funeral, if I was at my funeral, I'd be really upset. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but if I was at a, if if I was at a family member's funeral and one of, I mean, I guess we can classify him as a friend, but in the very least, let's say employee was FaceTiming it so that they could sort of revel in the grief 
and the sadness of the overall situation, I mean, I'd be firing him straight away. That's for sure. Yeah, it did. It, it yeah that that bit I didn't understand. But speaking of the kind of main cast, the interesting bit at the end with Nate and Rupert. So we all alluded to it, you know, at the start of season two about this kind of power struggle where Rupert maybe gets into like a power struggle about buying the club or like trying to get the club. Clearly, when Rupert has the conversation with Nate after saying he's just going to give the shares up, I think he struck a deal with Nate to become like part owner of the club or something like that and then bring Rupert on or I don't know. It, he whispers into his ear for yeah. some sort of scheming reason, right? I don't know what it, oh, I I think, what it was. And I'm, sh- I'm sure I think it's soon. I think it's him left. saying, <laughs> I think it's him saying he'd be manager. I think that's what, what it is. I don't get is that's a good thought. I, I just, he's the, I, I mean, coach beard has kind of gone off the rails a little bit, but I think he's the only character in the show that I genuinely don't like. And it's a shame because I like the actor. Like, I think it could be a good role. But even in the episode, I forget what it was in the beginning. It was when they were talking about death sitting around. He just had, like, such a, like, a douchey comment. Like, everything he says is just, like, he's such I a... I just prick. said he wanted to be reincarnated as, as oh, something. Yeah. What oh, yeah. Like no, as a lion so he could eat and devour everyone that has wronged him. Like, come on. Yeah. yeah. Like I, that, they're doing much. a bit of, a, like, a weird... I, you, you might be right. They might be doing that really weird, obvious thing where it's like, oh, the guy you least expect suddenly becomes the bastard by the end of it because he's been scheming and playing this kind of nice, naive person. Like some sort of weird Scooby-Doo episode where it's like, oh, it couldn't possibly be him. And it's like, let's unveil. And then they rip off his mask and it's him. If that is true, Eddie, I think it's annoyingly obvious now that it's happened just because of like a two second moment i mean there's something there right so you're right there's some element of a plan or a scheme so uh, who knows but yeah i guess we'll find out but overall i thought it was a pretty good episode better than i would say it's the best episode of season two for me it's it it's a shame that that coach beard standalone episode is in the middle because if it weren't for that episode, now the last three or so have really been picking it up. Mm. Like if you took that episode out yeah. right now, it'd be saying the last three or four have been really good and it's getting back to levels, but it's just, you have like that like blip where like it was getting yeah. better, better, better dropped. And now it's picked back up. Well, I think if, especially if you took the coach beard episode out and the Christmas episode out, then you would definitely feel as if, I'd still feel as if this season was not as good as the first one, but I wouldn't feel like it was a major drop-off in quality between the two. But that just sort of disrupted, and it makes sense based on what we spoke about on the what you brought up on the podcast before, that those were made after the fact. But they did really disrupt the flow. And, and in the same thing, right? You had the emotional setup from the end of the FA Cup semifinal for this moment that got disrupted by coach beard going on a weird night out in london that yeah. being haunted by 
Gary Lineker and Thierry Henry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nice cameo Shut for them. Thierry nice Henry. little, <laughs> nice little payday yeah, for on, them. It's what Thierry Henry saying like he should kill himself. It's probably one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. Like they paid Thierry Henry to say like, as a coach, if you do something wrong, you should probably kill yourself. Like that's what he's just advocated. It's a bit of a strange one, but I agree because one of my best moments so far. I know you guys spoke about it, but was when uh, Jamie Tart punched his dad. And then you just saw Roy Kent go over and just hug him. Like that was like a really, really good moment. Probably the best moment of the season. But I I agree with you, Eddie. I think the first season was better, but the second one is just, it's good, but it's just grittier. So it just has a different tone to it. It's just a bit more like, it takes on just a few more damaging topics, I guess. And here's my real question then. Is she going to leave Roy Kent for Jamie Tart? Because I think she will. I don't think she does. I think it causes some sort of situation to to kind of like make it exciting. But I think at the end, she she chooses Roy. It It is a shame because as I was watching that episode, I was thinking too, Jamie's a good character and he could be a funny character and a good a good side part of the show. But he doesn't have any conflict or anything going on. You know, like his his main talking point right now, these past few episodes has been with his teammates, like Danny Rojas, which is a small little thing. Like he deserves a little more. I think he's funny. And I think he has, he's, he's a good character on the show, but I guess this is the way to try and reintroduce him back, but I don't think it's going to work very well. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And he is of the players. He is the most interesting character left. Danny Rojas, they've kind of, He's so one-dimensional that it is just, he's so boring for the most part for me. Just he's like mindless. Kevin from The Office. Just, he's he's very one-dimensional. Yeah. But, you know, he went to the Guilford School of Acting or whatever, Guilford School of the Arts, uh, Sam, the actor who plays Danny Rojas. Oh, what, he went, oh, GSA, okay. Yeah. That's it's not showing because I think it's quite a good, School. <laughs> wow! Wow! Shots fired. Ah, <laughs> uh, just uh, like footballers like dressing up. Like we've seen it so much when they dress up like that. I don't understand where that has come from. But you know what? It's wait, wait. What are we say. going? With? Oh, you're specifically you're on the trainers thing. I'm I'm on the okay. trainers thing because that yeah. wasn't what we were. We were calling him one dimensional. It wasn't about the shoes. But I don't know. I could. I I do the only part of that that was mildly funny was when the one footballer said i won't have i don't have time to queue up and get shoes and they're like no and jamie tart was like nobody wants these shoes you (laughs) you could just go and buy them that was a bit funny and jamie tart's comment also in the church that these shoes were made for like sad people and twats or whatever he says that also that was also kind of you know it it hits home if you had to sort of dress up and wear shoes to work and you kind of go I, I, and you hate yourself really and your would. job. <laughs> yeah, ideally, I wouldn't want to be wearing these. But but yeah, no, it wasn't. They maybe they leaned into that one a little bit too hard, too. So but, two episodes left. And yeah. I think mm. if they keep at this trajectory, you, we could be, you know, I think it could wrap the season up nicely on a high note. Well, I mean, the big question then is when we've debated it several times, are they getting promoted? We have no idea where they are in the table. <laughs> yeah, I've got no. Con- as far as I'm or concerned, relegated. they're still in like 
They're in January. (laughs) What a twist if it would be like, oh, going into the final match of the season and Richmond are fifth from bottom. All they need is Because they haven't played any of their games. They forfeited a match last weekend to attend a funeral, a controversial move. The team team bus went the wrong way. (laughs) Star player Danny Rojas has destroyed his career by damaging his feet. (laughs) And that's the other thing, too, is... I mean, I know dress shoes aren't the most comfortable, but they're not that uncomfortable. It looked as if someone no. took a sledgehammer to Danny Rojas' feet. But Speaking of from... television. Oh, oh. Frank, oh I've got Frank, oh. Eddie, this is, for, this is the Frank show. Now. Yeah, yeah. It's the Duke, yes. <laughs> the Duke Go of on, Dance. Man. Don't disappoint with your transition. Speaking of television, I turned on Netflix the other day and had a great surprise as to what popped up on my new shows list. Season nine of the great British bake off has started. I'm not, I'm not wasting time on the podcast Cake talking week. about this. Cake week no, I'm not. aired on Friday. <laughs> to me, this is the element of TV. That's just ruining society. It started wow. with strictly come dancing, which Americans will know as, um, Dancing with the Stars. Uh, Dancing with the Stars. Just this mindless turning basic tasks or elements that we were not interested in. You know, no one appreciated bakers before. And then, well, we make a TV show about it. Now I want to see everything. I don't bake. I I want to see how they bake. I disagree with that a lot. I mean, I do go to like bakeries, especially when we're in France. We'd go to like bakeries and get nice pastries and baked goods and things like that. And... I bake on but that, a decently but, regular basis. But that was I mean... happening. <laughs> but but that's been happening in France for hundreds of years. <laughs> like that isn't a that, that wasn't like characterized because of the television that has exploded in France. I just think it's made it's 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 done such a damage, and I think it's part of the reason why Netflix has then done well is because it's made network television stations around the world just go. Do you know what's a lot easier to do is make mindless reality TV, which costs a whole lot less to make. We don't have to have anyone write anything. We just stick 10 people and we make them do something. Cook, bake, sew. Uh, Survive. Make what, That's at least a little more interesting. If there were if there were actual stakes of dying, I'd be all for it. But Drag? Yeah, race whatever around, it is. Race and, around America. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we've just killed. Be a big brother. In the process, we've kind of killed the creativity and the quality content that should be coming out. And it's actually played into the hands then of Netflix or, you know, any of the other major streaming platforms, because then they can throw money at people who otherwise would be on network TV shows who don't have space for it. They have no platform anymore anywhere else. And then they make really great content. And it's kind of short term thinking. From the prospect and then all well, that ends up happening is they sell it to netflix in the long run anyway so then you go oh, i didn't watch the great british bake-off when it was on the B- on the bbc or on itv and now i'll watch it on on netflix so What's i couldn't that? I, um, I, I, I wasn't able to is, so <laughs> there is that family guy where it's like fox is now owned by disney which will eventually be owned by netflix which will eventually be owned by pornhub <laughs> <laughs> no i mean that's the path we are going down but 
yeah, I think it's... I, I kind of agree with you because there isn't there a show on Netflix which is kind of like the anti Bake Off where they get like six people in who have never baked in their life and then they do baking and it's kind of like but that has no effect either like you well say, there's a show on food network it's like worst cooks in america yeah but i mean this is all you had to do you have you either get people who are really good at it to do it or you get people who are really bad at it to do it and people find it equally compelling hey go <laughs> that's back the, to the difference great thing, british right? bake-off is just <laughs> amateurs who are slightly good at it <laughs> so they but they're not the real around. Hold on, hold on. A lot of them are not real. What are we classifying as an amateur baker? I mean, we're not talking about professional athletes here. It's they not, don't bake like, for oh, a living. A... Like... Yeah, but there's not that many like pro bakers out there. You know what I mean? Like it's it's it is by its very nature amount. has been that would no, that would have been a good transition to Baker Mayfield and NFL. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> but I. Going back to the win-loser thing. So if you win the worst, like the biggest loser, right? If you win the worst, you are the worst, but you're the winner. Does that make you a winner? But you're not the worst. Because in the end, you've kind of been the best. Because they don't reward someone for just continuing to make food that's totally so, not so edible. The best of the worst. It's not yeah. like good good news. <laughs> Every judge got food poisoning every round. Congratulations. <laughs> why why did we ask him to cook pork in this round? And Sam, the... the the analogy to Biggest Loser there could create an enormous issue. <laughs> you just said they're not going to reward the person who has gained the most weight over the show. But here's my transition then, before we do go on to the NFL. Both the biggest winners and losers, once again for me, the U.S. Ryder Cup team, who put on an incredible performance. I mean, I didn't... I thought it was a bit of a mismatch anyway going into it when we did our preview last week. It kind of went the way I expected it to go. Wait, can but I guess your negative? Can I guess your negative? Go for it. Are you going to have like yeah, what you didn't it. like about it? I mean, it's my negative. <laughs> I think that's I think it's going to be my negative. I think it's it's going to be the way they celebrated. Just the overall atmosphere and the and the, just the way they carry themselves. Just a lack of decorum a lack of like no humility when they win ever it's consistently the issue it's what i actually i go into the Ryder cup every time and i kind of don't care who wins you know as a european it doesn't the concept of europe playing golf i don't become in any way patriotic about it and i think that every time as the Ryder cup starts just thinking i just want action and thrills and some good golf to be played. And in an ideal situation, I want it to be all up to play for on the, on a putt on the final, in the final singles on Sunday on the 18th hole. That's the dream scenario. And then I see how the Americans celebrate and behave throughout the course of it. And then I start yeah. thinking to myself, fucking American scum. <laughs> to, this, can this, I just add that this there's so two great. moments. No, no, no. There's two moments, right? And it's when Justin Thomas had the beer on what was it like the second afternoon? And it's DeChambeau when he put his putter down at like, why haven't this you conceded this hole? Those were the two things that got me. And it like obviously there's fans that are gonna win like say things at bad timing. Like you can't control every single one, and that's understandable at a Ryder Cup. But those two things from the people playing are only gonna make the crowd be more partisan. And those two things bugged me the most. So I agree with Eddie. It was like the manner 
of how they went about it was bad. This this is so great because it plays perfectly into the pre-recording chat that Sam and I had that my father thinks you're the most anti-American person on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) He literally went on to a 10-minute rant one day about how you're so anti-American. It's unbelievable. (laughs) And your quote right before plays that. I'm calling them American scum. Look, there's lots of things I love about America. Uh, The way in which they celebrate is probably not one of them. And I actually think caused the country as a whole a lot of problems over in recent years that sometimes, I mean, it's stealing other comedians bits, right? But the idea of just not consistently calling yourself number one would maybe piss people off a little bit less if you just thought (laughs) maybe top 10 in some things, just not the best in the world at everything. But I actually think I contrasted it too. So the Solheim Cup, which I really enjoyed watching a couple of weeks ago, also in the U.S., very partisan crowd. I got no problem with people cheering and celebrating for the team that they want to win. But actually, because with the pandemic and stuff, there was almost no Europeans in attendance at either event. And at the Solheim Cup, there seemed by the the crowd some acknowledgement of this fact that it wasn't the normal. Obviously, you'd normally have the home crowd outnumber the visiting crowd anyway, but there would be a bit of a balance. And for the Solheim Cup people sort of showed a little degree of respect and decided, you know what, we kind of got to cheer for the Europeans a bit too at times because they're not getting the support they would normally have. And for the Ryder Cup, there was none of that. It was just full on. And what bothers me about it is just, it is very much when you're winning, loudest people on earth. But you've lost most of the Ryder Cups in recent years. And there's been a lot of Sundays of very quiet golf courses. And so I think that's the the balance of the reaction when you win versus contrasted with the reaction when you lose it just doesn't sit well as a non-American when I, when I watch it. And I then compared that with, I mean, I don't know if you saw Rory McIlroy crying during yes. his interview, but the difference of him speaking about how this is the event that means the most to him in the world. I mean, his literal words were, words were he doesn't give a shit about all of his individual performances when he compares it with how much the Ryder Cup means that he, if this hadn't gone the way they wanted it to go, but he hoped that it at least has inspired future generations of golfers. The Americans had been great. And the captains on the European team didn't deserve the blame and that hopefully next time around they do better and then he wanted to be part of it for a long time. That to me kind of represented the overall European ethos that you see throughout the Ryder Cup experience. And you wouldn't have had Brooks Kepka doing that had the if, Europe were wiped the floor with the Americans. Spoken right. like if, a true if the loser. US had lost, if the <laughs> US had lost, Kupka and DeChambeau wouldn't be doing that kind of weird bromance hug at the end of it, right? They would have been at each other's throats massively again. It is a classic sing when you're winning kind of moment. But interesting point, Eddie, like you mentioned about the Ryder Cup, um, uh, kind of like Europeans have dominated, but actually over the last four the home team have dominated every single one massively. And like you say, those moments like the miracle of Medina, those are the moments for me that personify the Ryder Cup. It's like how close it always is going into the singles usually, save, you know, like I said, the Medina one. Is is there a slight worry with the Ryder Cup that 
the home side are always going to dominate now because they're making it too one-sided where they pick how they pick the course how they change the course how they alter it so now we're just going to see one-sided year on year so europe will win it when it goes to rome because they've now got two years to understand exactly what to do to make it so european focused do you, do you see the point i'm getting at are we just going to have like the u.s I, win in the usa europe i, win in I, europe? I don't th- i don't think you have a choice unless you decide to start hosting the royal rider cup in a neutral venue because you just like, don't you don't have you know europe is links golf courses it's that's what you know you don't get many non-links golf courses in europe and so whereas in the US, the vast majority of golf courses are not link style golf courses and the the style in which you have to play, the role the elements play in, which is what people had spoken about actually coming into this because it, it was on Lake Michigan and because wind is a, is a, has more of an effect at Whistling Straits. I mean, I guess it comes through the name, but uh, <laughs> then it does Never at maybe some it. other golf courses in the US that they thought... Europe had a better chance because of that fact. But I just don't think there's anything you can do. You just know if the golf course is really long and straight, the U.S. is probably going to have a big advantage. If it's more technical and if you have to play, if if course management is a larger part of what is going to lead to you being successful, then Europe will have the advantage. And it would be asking a lot from one of them to decide, let's go out of our way to level the playing field and pick a course that intentionally goes against our strengths and plays into the strengths of our opponent. But yeah, maybe I, they shouldn't it announce it till the week before <laughs> what, where they're going. Yeah. But, but I mean, everyone has equal opportunity to prepare. There's nothing stopping from Brooks Koepka going to play golf a few times over the next few years in Rome mm-hmm. on a, put it this way. I'm, I bet you very few of the Americans are even going to bother to attend any of the European tour events that take place at the events in question. I mean, you see that like when it was in Paris, not many of them had played in at the, at the golf national, the course where it was held, you know, a couple of years ago, you could have gone and played the French open. That's that was the only advantage that the, the Europeans really had. It was like, yeah, we play on the European tour sometimes and we play events at these courses and then it also suits our natural style of golf. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, Andy, why I would see you leave the best country in the world to go play at an inferior country? What, like Europe? Yeah. <laughs> all don't, of Europe. Don't call Europe a country. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I meant that, France, was, that was... I'll pick on all of Europe. Oh, okay. Neutral, Spe- neutral country, of... where's it going? Like Afghanistan oh. or Australia. Saudi Arabia? That would be your neutral country. I don't know where else. The neutral country, the natural, if you were really trying to do it, it would be very boring and it would remove all the atmosphere from the Ryder Cup. It would be to go and play it somewhere like Dubai. Where yeah, Saudi Arabia or whatever. They are American-style golf courses, so it would be advantage America, but the Europeans do play on them more frequently. So, you know, it would be a mix. And I'm sure you could alter the course slightly to try and you know, change it a bit, but, but yeah, that would be the, the, the sort of sensible neutral venue. Speaking of the winners and losers of the Ryder cup, do you think I personally thought this was a huge win for DeChambeau? What do you think? It's, I mean, yeah. especially the first hole on, was it Sunday when he drove, when he drove the, the green, green 
and then and then made yeah, the eagle. Yeah. I think after he made that eagle, he just felt so much better about what everyone else feels about him. <laughs> no, I think it's what we spoke about going into it, right? This was the opportunity for him to change opinion and to become someone people support. And I agree with you. I think it will. he is the big winner. I don't think there was necessarily a big loser out of it. It was, I mean, Ian Poulter won his singles, right? So he keeps his singles record going. Besides Team Europe. Well, I mean, in the end, the USA... This is what Eddie is on about, by the way. I know know he's joking. I know you're you're kind of But you But you see, this is what I'd say is you're kind of joking, but you're kind of not. Like deep deep down, this is... But the USA won it in the manner in which the USA should have won it. I mean, as one to two favorites to win the Ryder Cup, they won it the way you would expect one to two favorites to win the Ryder Cup. And the only reason that's more surprising is because in recent years, when they have been heavy favorites, they've blown it. And so it was more surprising to just watch it and go, oh, yeah, you know how the average world ranking of the U.S. is way higher than the average world ranking of Europe? Turns out better golfers beat worse golfers most of the time. And whereas in recent years, that hasn't been the case. But... You know, I'm sure Europe will come back more determined, a little bit stronger. There's some, there were some positives from a European standpoint. Hovland was good. John Rahm does look like he can be the sort of leader in the European team as, as the sort of best player, you know, kind of going into it in Europe feeling like they might have the best player in the world on their team. So I think there's positives and it will be interesting to see in Rome, but, you know. And I look. I also have to say, I you know, I did went to the Ryder Cup a couple of years ago. It's it's maybe the most enjoyable sporting event I've ever been to in person. So, and there I found the U.S. fans to be mostly quite charming, but they were also losing. So different atmosphere. How do you transition that onto American football? You've spoken about the Americans. Well, I'd like to talk about the real big loser of this weekend before we, and this will be brief. But before we do go to the NFL, and the real big loser from this weekend was Anthony Joshua. Oh, yes. Because Anthony Joshua, I mean, what an awful performance. And just when we were kind of in this world where everyone was talking about how we have three great heavyweights at one time and when when was the fight between Fury and Joshua ever going to happen, I mean... If you're Fury, there's just no reason to ever have that fight now. And just a really sad performance from a a boxer I like. I mean, Anthony Joshua seems like a really nice guy. He's just not exciting or compelling in any way. Yeah, lost uh, unanimous decision, right? Unanimous decisions to Usyk. I think I'm not sure the correct way to pronounce it in Ukrainian. Yeah. (laughs) who was, uh, you know, coming up in weight. So, you know, fighting above in a a division he would not normally fight in. So you would have thought that that the the size and weight advantage that Anthony Joshua had had, and the punching power advantage, that he should have just been able to boss and dominate the fight. But in the end, he was super passive. Eddie Hearn, his... Uh, his promoter has subsequently, I mean, they've released the scorecards. They had Anthony Joshua leading going into the eighth round. 
it would have been a shocking decision if the, if Anthony Joshua had won. I mean, he then got the, destroyed in the final couple of rounds. But, I mean, it was just just such a passive, passive performance from him. What I don't... One thing that interests me about boxing is, like, one of the first things that came out about Joshua is obviously he had his first um, setback against... I can't remember the guy's name, but he had his first setback, came back. Ruiz. Ruiz, and then came back, won a few, obviously got back to where he was, and then um, lost this one. And so many people basically just say, that's it. There's no point coming back. He's done with boxing. And then Joshua comes out and says, look, I'm not a... I can't remember the words he used. He's like, I'm not a crybaby, basically. I'm not a win- I'm not a moaner. I'm going to be back. What is it about boxing that once you lose one thing... Okay, let's say two at most. Why is it all of a sudden like done can't come back, got to retire, this is all over. So I think there's two reasons why nowadays you feel that way. I don't think it would have been like that before. And when you look back through boxing greats, they almost all won a few, lost a few fights at different stages of their career as well, not all just at the tail end. I think the difference is nowadays they spend so much time avoiding their tough fights. And then when they lose, they lose to people they shouldn't. You know, his losses to Yusick and Ruiz two fighters who there's no way he should be losing to them so that's what makes it look bad if he'd lost to tyson fury then you would say okay come back have the have the rematch in the same way that wilder and fury are going to have their third fight against each other no one's telling either of them that they should retire so i think it's who you're losing to he's going to have the rematch there is a rematch clause in the contract for this fight so he's going to have he's going to come back and beat him and then i'm sure we'll have a year or two more of speculation of when will they fight? You know, when will the Fury, assuming Fury beats Wilder, it will still be that. When will Fury fight Joshua? It will never happen. In the meantime, they'll both fight a couple of, you know, also Rands, beat each of them easily, and just kind of keep the speculation going. Oh, my only other thought too on the boxing from the weekend. I know that fighting in Madison Square Garden or in Las Vegas is the sort of pinnacle in the sense of the historical significance of fighting in either of those locations. But the atmosphere at Spurs' stadium to have 100,000 people as loud and the singing and stuff that was going on, I mean, incredible. Just a totally transforms the experience of watching a fight versus just hearing people shout when there's some punches get landed. But yeah, I mean, if I were a fight boxer, that's where I want to be fighting now. I, Everyone seems to be doing really well at Spurs Stadium, except Spurs. <laughs> like, like all of like the NFL are going there. Obviously, the atmosphere is great. They're going to have like, oh, here we go. Here's, here's his plug. Here it comes. <laughs> Zero plug. All right, that, we'll save that for later. We can go to the NFL now. So... Which, but yeah, um, we do. You do have uh, Fury Wilder coming up too. Yeah, that's in two weeks. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be exciting. That's yeah. always fun to watch because they just just go after each other. That's a battle. Which is again what makes Joshua and his performance in this fight look worse because you know you're going to see in two weeks just two men standing toe to toe throwing haymakers at each other, whereas he barely threw a power punch over the course of 12 rounds. So that's what makes it a little bit, you kind of watch that and think either you have no confidence or you don't just don't have it in you. And 
there are people out there who, I mean, you got Deontay Wilder, right? Who claims he wants to kill someone in the ring, but that would be something he'd like to have on his resume. So, I mean, you get immediately arrested. I, I guess it would depend on the context, but well, he's already said he wants to kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> if he then kills someone, that's premeditated. True. Murder. Yeah, that does change it a slightly. I guess. Yeah, I think a lawyer, a good lawyer, was would probably. Get... Well, that was the other thing too, and we this. Hey, if you're not following us on our social media account, you go and follow the Big Chill Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. I tweeted out. Anthony Joshua did an Apollo Creed style entrance into the ring. He had like a dance number with fireworks going off behind him. How has someone in boxing not gone, "Ah, Anthony, this won't look good. Like the parallels are going to be there for everyone to see. I mean, let's hope you don't die, but still maybe reduce the entrance so that it doesn't look quite so cocky. Would you just walk out? No music. I just walk out by myself. No music, <laughs> dead silence, just staring at my opponent. I would just walk out and I would just, I think that would be the most intimidating. I'd let the, I might give a little, especially if you were at home, like if you were in Spurs Stadium there and you came out as the British fighter, you'd know that you'd get crowd noise as you came out. And I would just revel in that moment. And would you then, do some like Hulk Hogan ES styles to the sides? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. NFL. And this is all, maybe not all, but putting aside a tremendous amount of winnings that have now been lost in two straight weeks with the Chiefs blowing it. I mean, it's, I don't even want to talk about like how angry I am on that part. But even putting that aside, this is someone who, before this season started, I would have said could potentially be the best quarterback of all time. And now this is back-to-back weeks where it seems to me like we, – we talk about how he plays backyard football and how that's so amazing. But it seems to me now as if he really truly thinks he's just playing backyard football and that a lot of this doesn't matter. And – I mean, the great example is the one that he's kind of getting ripped on this week is he had that no-look pass that then got intercepted. And while I agree, it was still – it hit the receiver's hands. It should have been caught, but it deflected off the receiver's hands and was intercepted. I get that part that the receiver has a responsibility. At the same time, he had no reason to pull a running-to-the-side no-look pass. He could have stopped looked right at that receiver, fired that ball in, and there was still no one within five yards of him. I mean, it wasn't like he was look, He was kind of looking off the safety, but the safety was so far away, it wouldn't. he didn't need to do that. And that is, that's disappointing me. He, I didn't think he was that type of player where I still would have th- said he's going to win the game because he wants to win and he's a winner. But it seems as if, he doesn't care at this moment, and that's just disappointing. As someone who's a huge fan, that's very disappointing. Yeah, Patrick is not my Mahomie right now. I mean, <laughs> I, I I think the parallels to me with Steph Curry continue to grow, which is that they came in, they were sort of transcendent talents. They changed the way the game was played. They were able to be universally loved at first. And then 
Steph Curry is still tremendously popular, but the level of cockiness that came about once they had success, which for Mahomes happened way earlier than it did for Steph Curry, but still once they kind of had that, it made them significantly less likable for me. And that the element of it being fun to watch them do the backyard football or shooting from anywhere or whatever, it then turned into slightly disrespectful for their opponents and slightly disrespectful kind of to the game itself, which sounds so makes me seem like I should be sitting on NFL countdown and be 75 years old and tapping my Super Bowl ring onto the counter. But it just, I, yeah, I don't know. It's not a playground. And I think, yeah, you could, I'm a little concerned for the Chiefs at this point. And you know why I wasn't really concerned? Because I felt like I could not believe that the Chargers chose to score a touchdown and leave whatever that was, 37 seconds on the clock. The fact that they did that, the hey, if you're their kicker, I would just say I need to get off this team now because they could have just taken, they could have just knelt. And then as time expired, he could have kicked a chip shot field goal. So it means two things. They don't trust him with a chip shot field goal. And it also means that they trust their defense to just stop the Chiefs, even with 37 seconds, which if you went back a year or two, you would have said, and Romo reacted that way in the moment, you would have thought to yourself, oh, this is not smart. See, I I disagree with that take, especially when Romo is saying that, because it's 37 seconds to score a touchdown with, uh, they may have had a timeout left, I'm not sure. They had had one one timeout. I think they have one. Even with Mahomes to go 80 yards in 35 seconds is a pretty astonishing feat. I, I mean, if you had said field goal, I agree. But I think that was taken a little out of proportion. I mean, there's not many that you're running four plays. So in four plays, they have to score. No, That's no, you'll run way fairly, more than fairly four. Difficult. You'll run way more than four with a timeout and the ability to get out of bounds. Yeah. If you have a good they drive. Ran f- you, you, they ran five plays. <laughs> yeah, because they messed it up. Because they got tackled in bounds on every single play, basically. But that's what and, you do as a defense. And, you, you cover uh, the sidelines as a defense. That's what I'm saying. Like it's really difficult to go 80 yards with 35 seconds and one timeout when the defense. Knows you say that you need a touchdown. I mean, you say that, but we see teams do it on a weekly basis, and the, all those teams are not the Chiefs with the Chiefs' weapons around them. But I promise you, every weekend we see a team do that. I mean, we even I don't saw know it the last degree. time I've seen a team won a game on a game-winning touchdown with 35 seconds. I would I'll love put it to this see one. that stat because I don't think I've seen it in Did maybe Brady once in the past two years. Recently. Oh, that's Brady that's insane. And game. and Frank, your memory. We're not going to put that. We're not even going to throw I, that out as a. I, as, I'm, as, I'm as calling. A, I'm calling out. I'm calling you out here. I want you to tell me the times that under 40 seconds with one or less timeouts, a team has scored a touchdown to win a game. I'll give you to next I mean, podcast. I mean, yeah, look, you're asking me to be pro football focus here too. You're now throwing additional elements with only one timeout. And look, I'm not disagreeing. That makes a huge difference, but I don't have some database. I'm able to quickly search through and put in these different filters and say, oh, it's happened seven times in the past four months. But look, I'm not saying it's easy, but we see it. And you can say, look, and not it's different because it was a field goal, but look at how quickly 
the Packers got the ball back in with exactly the same situation. They marched down the field. I, the Packers could have scored a touchdown against the Niners yesterday if they needed to. They then slowed the, you know, they, they decided to kick that. <laughs> but they found, you know, you were just getting open because you, what you're exactly what you're saying is, oh, protect the sidelines. I actually think too many defenses protect the sidelines too much because then what they do is they give you 35 yards up the middle, which it's like, well, we use our first time out. Now we're at midfield. And then you do it again, and it's like, okay, we run up and spike the ball. And so say you started with 37 seconds. You can suddenly be on their 30-yard line with the clock stopped and 18 seconds to go. And well, the like, Packers well, did it with three seconds to go. No. Yeah. <laughs> when? But the, the circumstances were different, Frank, because like then they wanted to kill the clock to kill the field goal. They would have been able to do it faster had they needed to. If you see what I mean, like they could have got to the line of scrimmage faster. They could have snapped the ball faster. Can I what, can I what, add one thing we, about the Chiefs? One, yeah. Just one thing. Like this is really obvious, but I'm curious, right? So Mahomes still had a 250 plus game, three touchdowns as well. And I saw the stat that he's done. That was the 23rd time in 50 starts. So it's pretty pretty awesome. Kind of like he's consistently still throwing high and performing well, but the chiefs are just conceding more points than they used to. So I saw that it's like they've conceded four games in a row now, 25 plus Mahomes loses games when they're 30 plus, which is kind of obvious, but is it just a case that Mahomes is doing the same stuff? He's just needing to do more because the defense is letting up more than they used to. Like, I know that sounds like an obvious thing, but is Mahomes having to be more risky because he has more points to take back now? No, I, I know what you're saying, and and you're right. They their defense is just can't stop anybody. But at the same time, they're turning the ball over a lot, and they never used to do that. Is if that anything, because of the pressure of knowing that th- they aren't no, going to get a lot many of them are stops sloppy. on the other side? I, I mean, a no look pass that isn't an accurate one. That's just that's not being aggressive. That's being sloppy. You know, fumbling the ball with 20 seconds left to kick a game winning field goal last week. That's not, that's just being sloppy. That's what worries me is the level of attention to detail. And I mean, they need to get it together quick because they're one and two in a division right now that they're in last place. And that was the last time they've been in last place in what, like over, was it 10 years or 15 years or like something crazy that they have been in last place. And, you know, they've already lost one to the Chargers. So they're in a tough spot right now and they need to turn it around quick and get that attention to detail. So. That's what worries me about that team. But Eddie, I will shift the Chargers quickly onto the Giants because what the Chargers did on that last drive is that they realized you need to go for it on fourth down because field goals don't win NFL games. And this is a memo Joe Judge has missed for the thousandth fucking time. And I'm so tired of a team that will maybe get two wins in a season playing conservative and kicking field goals on fourth and three or fourth and four in the red zone. You're one of the worst teams in the NFL. Just go for it. What are you trying to do at this point? Like read the analytics, see what other teams are doing, see what teams that are winning are doing and adjust your gameplay out of the 1980s. I'm so sick of this ultra conservative Joe judge approach it's not working. Field goals are not Whoa. winning games. I like to play slight devil's advocate here, which is 
The I Giants are bad. <laughs> the Giants are bad. They're never going to be good this year. Would you rather they win four close games and then have the seventh pick in the draft versus lose virtually all of them and end up with a top three pick that allows them to, you would hope, pick a nailed-on superstar at the, at the top end of the draft. And I think history would tell you that a lot of teams regret winning meaningless close games over the course of the NFL season. And I'm not saying that he's strategically doing it. I guess you could not rule it out. The idea that he said, hey, if we're going to lose the close games, the easiest way for me to do this is to make sure we're never scoring touchdowns when we have... I can. It doesn't look like I'm throwing a game, but this is the best way for me to turn points down without it being flat out like match fixing. But I, I will devil's advocate that devil's advocate. The Giants seemingly have been doing that for the past six, seven years now, and they've gotten top draft picks and it just hasn't worked. So at this point, what are they still doing that for? I mean, here's a team though that could, should be two and one right now. And I mean, could win their division. I think this is what I also hate. Because none of these situations were at the end of games, the should be two and one, it's like, well, maybe if they'd scored a touchdown, it changes the way the Falcons play. He jumped off sides on the final field goal of the game to give them the win last week. That was literally the final play. (laughs) I know, but you're talking about the more the fact that overall they're turning down. Which problem were you talking about? The fact that they suck? Because if the fact that they suck and make bad mistakes, that's why they lose games and they're not good. But if we're talking about the fact that strategically their game management is not up to par, the fact that they are occasionally opting for three points then changes the way you're like, no, I agree with you. I'm not happens. one of those people that say like, had they kicked a field goal, then they have two more points and they would have won by two at the end. Like I, I am fully on board with that. That's the dumbest logic of football fans in the planet. But I just think overall, if Joe Judge were a better coach, and they were more disciplined and didn't jump off sides on a final play, you know, they would be a better team. Like I, I don't, I don't find the need for the Giants to tank this season because they've tanked every other season and it's not working. Like unless they want to throw away the general. That's manager not his fault. Start though, right? from scratch. Well, yeah, you should be getting rid of a general manager. You should get rid of a general manager who takes Saquon Barkley with a high draft pick. A high draft pick running back is not going to do you any good. Hey, he and scored Jones. first time in first time in a couple of years. Yeah, but uh, be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Daniel Jones still fumbling, you know, some things never change. I don't know. I mean, say, who do you think the best coach is in the NFL right now? Sean McVay. Okay, that's maybe a little controversial, but let's say yes. <laughs> so if Sean McVay is the Giants coach right now, how much better are they? 3-0. I mean, that's so they are okay. polar opposite. All right. And what I mean, do they, been, they make? It's been the Broncos, Washington, and the Falcons. So 3 0 isn't that outrageous. <laughs> well, except you could say, I think the Broncos might be, it's difficult to tell because their start to their season has been easy, but the Broncos are 3 0. So I don't know why you just determined that the Giants would be the team that's going to beat them. 
But well, I, I don't think the, the Broncos, Broncos even come close to making the playoffs. All said and done. Oh, the, I think the Broncos will make the playoffs now. I mean, they've beaten zero and nine teams. Starters part of the reason early in the season, the teams you beat record 16, tend to be bad. <laughs> yeah, tend to be bad because you've you've guaranteed they've lost at least thirty three percent of their games. So, but if you're going to tell I, me the Jets and Giants are going to be good teams, <laughs> no. But I don't think anyone in the NFC East is a good team. So if your if your schedule involves playing NFC East teams, we're going to be able to poke holes in your schedule all season long. But I think that I think that the Broncos are a good team, but I mean good, not very good, not excellent, but they're good. Who's a better three and team, Broncos or Raiders? I think it's close. That's um, that's that's. I think the Raiders have the higher ceiling, but they make more mistakes. And I think yesterday's game that the Raiders won represented both of those elements. They they almost threw that game away. At the same time, they showed when you see when their offense is working really well, they you know there's some unstoppable things that they run at times. And Derek Carr can be really really good. He can be an elite level quarterback, just not consistently. Yeah, the Raiders have beaten the Ravens, the Steelers at home, and the Dolphins. And the Broncos have beaten the Jets, the Jaguars, and the Giants. I mean, just saying. I don't know. Saying. Yeah, but I don't know. <laughs> Aside from the Ravens, the Ravens are the standout team from that set of. Because you think the Steelers are terrible. The Steelers do look pretty terrible right now. The Dolphins are are no great shakes, right? And okay, the Ravens, but the Ravens. I don't even know how good the Ravens are. I think the Ravens are like the. They think they're going to try and throw us off all season. I think the Ravens are who I think they are. Yeah. I don't think they'll win that division. I mean, none of us picked them to, right? So, Sam, how about your Bengals? How about Joe Burrow? <laughs> well, it's just kind of hilarious, that game against the Steelers, right? Because they had to fundamentally do nothing to score 24. I mean, when you look at the, kind of the stats of it, right? They, um, I saw the, what was the crazy stat? It was saying like the Steelers didn't get a sack for the first time in 76 games. And and that seems pretty crazy because, you know, the Steelers rely on their defense at the moment and they just, they just weren't able to stop anything. And the interesting thing is when you look at kind of the stats of the game, they, they almost doubled what the Bengals did in yardage um, in terms of passing yardage. They did nothing in the run game, but then again, you know, Bengals only posted just under a hundred just the Bengals were able to just kind of march down the field quicker. And um, if it wasn't for kind of, what was it, the four sacks for Ben? Um, yeah, the Steelers look pretty bad at the moment. And that's not to say that the Bengals look good. Um, I just think the Bengals could have done anything that game and probably won. The way the Steelers played it, they're pretty atrocious. But um, yeah, pretty good start though. I mean, considering they'd only won three in the previous two seasons, it's pretty nice to be going into this uh, kind of, yeah, well, two and one basically. So, yeah, I, they'll slip away over the course of the year, but enjoy it while it lasts. Oh, it's it's an overreaction, and I love it. But it's it's nice just to see it happen, I guess. So a few other, I think, 
slight overreactions from one game that maybe seems to be leveling out the Bills, who in one week people thought maybe they weren't one of the better teams in the AFC and now again look like one of the better teams in the AFC. And yeah, I mean, you could you could make the same argument. Who are they beating? But yeah. And what about the Saints? The Jekyll and Hyde, think, New Orleans Saints. Yeah, we. That's <laughs> that's what we said going into it, right? That's what they are. And you can't pick them with any confidence. People should just stay away from it in general. One week, Jameis Winston is going to throw for four hundred yards, six touchdowns, and the next week he's going to throw six interceptions. So, you know. That that's there's there there will be no surprises in how surprising their season is. I would I would say one of the things I kind of like from all this is that Donald's move to the Panthers is looking really good. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's I mean, was he? He's won three straight games. Uh, he's had three hundred plus passing yards in two or three games, and he only had four in thirty eight of the Jets. Yeah, so it's he's, looking good, and they're making the Panthers look good. It's making him look good. He's had yeah. he's had a nice they're early schedule. Solid. Let's see how he does, because I mean I don't know what the recovery time projected recovery time on McCaffrey is from his hamstring injury, but I'm going to assume he might miss a game or two because of that. In the very now, least. this was this was a controversy we were talking about at the bar on Saturday. Did he injure his hamstring and then jump in the air? because it was injured or did he try and do that like jump hop thing that running backs like to do where they kind of like hop in the air then like and step down and like pivot off of it and did he hurt it when he jumped in the air and relanded because i said it was he did that like jump hop juke move and then hurt it but other people were saying he hurt it and that's why he jumped (laughs) this was like a a pretty heated debate we had in the bar (laughs) What a what a night! <laughs> uh, I have to I have to watch it again, and I'll tell you on on Thursday I'll come back with a detailed analysis. Um, Just ask yeah, him, text him if you can. I'll send a text to to, to Chris as I okay. call him. <laughs> I call him CM. I I agree though with Darnold, obviously feeling a lot better. And I speaking of text messages, I wonder if he yet has texted Zach Wilson to kind of tell him that life gets better, like just stick it out. Life will get better. Once you go Jets, it's going to be miserable <laughs> for a few years. Yes. It's going to be really awful for the next three to four. But then after that, who knows, maybe you'll win a couple games. Yep. I mean, I feel good for him. I don't like to see anyone go through any athlete, go through a really tough time. So and to see them kind of publicly fail to the degree with which Sam Darnold did with the Jets. So it's nice to see, if nothing else, right, If his, when his career ends, he'll try and be able to point now and say, look, I was a capable NFL quarterback, which is what people probably would have questioned had he not signed with another team after the Jets. So I don't think he's – I don't think it's going to amount to anything special. And I think over the course of the year, the Panthers are good. He has a good team around him. But I don't think, it's not like I suddenly think they're going to make a deep playoff run and we're going to see Sam Darnold making amazing plays in January. It's interesting you bring up, Eddie, the you don't like seeing people be publicly humiliated. And that 
definitely brings up Justin athletes, Fields. I said. Justin athletes. Fields. I <laughs> this brings up Justin Fields. Yeah, that was who, bad. Um, Sunday, uh, Sunday night, Dan Orlovsky, who's on Sunday NFL Countdown and Primetime and all these shows, said that uh, head coach Nagy for the Bears should be fired today, Monday, the following day, because of how bad of a game plan he put in and that it seemed as if he purposely was setting him up to fail and almost to get in to the extent that he almost seemed like he wanted him to get injured by the way he ran the offense where he took 20 pass attempts and 15 out of the 20, he did not put one extra person besides the minimum five people blocking, which then led to him getting sacked nine times in that game. And even halfway through the third quarter, after he had gotten whatever it was like six sacks, he still didn't even adjust any of the protection packages and was leaving him with five linemen to defend a team that obviously they could not defend. And they were comparing it to um, what's his face. Uh, Gruden, Jay Gruden with Dwayne Haskins, where that was Gruden did not like Haskins from, from the start, did not want him and put him out there without any chance of success to kind of prove that he thought he was bad and that it seems Nagy's doing almost the same. I think it's tough. I think it's tough. I think if I were Nagy, it would have been frustrating. And the media is, and fans, but the media, because fans don't have a responsibility to be sensible. You you know that they are not supposed to have a reasoned opinion consistently on their own teams. People in the media do have a responsibility to be more sensible. And I think when you look at how people have pushed forward this idea that Fields was going to be some magical cure-all for the Bears. I think that might have been frustrating if you were in the Bears camp and maybe not seeing a quarterback performing at the standard where you thought, yeah, if we throw this guy in the deep end, he's going to be fine. And I don't think it's impossible for me to imagine that he intentionally set him up to fail. But maybe he did think to himself, oh, here is this guy who you all thought I was an idiot for not putting out on the field and you thought was NFL ready from day one. And I'm not going to set him up to fail, but I am going to show you why he's definitely not NFL ready from day one and that we need to be patient with him. Again, I'm not even sure if that's the case. I think it's one <laughs> of those. It's a hell of a long game, game and thought process. Yeah. yeah, hell of a long. I mean, but then again, they had one of the worst offenses last season as well. So like Eddie said, was this meant to be completely revolutionary? But, I mean, the way be. people were talking about it, literally the way people talking about it, you would have thought that Justin Fields was the greatest NFL prospect in history and that as soon as you put him on, on, on the field, the Bears offense was going to be like the Rams from the early 2000s yeah. and just unstoppable. Yeah. And I think oh. as a coach that legitimately might have – because people were calling him an idiot for not having Fields out there for choosing, opting to have Dalton. They were saying it was fireable that he started the season with. I mean, he's fire. everything he does is fireable, supposedly. And he probably should be fired. But everything he does, it's, oh, he's got to be fired now. Is, isn't that kind of the point, though? Yeah. <laughs> if he does something every week that is sackable, he should be sacked, right? Yes and no. But, but it's also just people have made up their mind that he needs to be, you know. Yeah. We touched on it when we previewed this game last week, you know, that – 
he wasn't the superstar in college. You know, he wasn't even Trevor Lawrence coming out of college. He was a good QB who was highly mobile, could make plays, but also missed a lot of passes, seemed to be very slow at reading his progressions. You know, so I think you're right, is that the Bears fans were just had some false hope that he was going to be come in and be the next Patrick Mahomes in his first game, which is crazy to think. But here, I just have the full quote from Orlovsky is yesterday you showed us that you are either incapable of designing the proper game plan around a dynamic quarterback, or you showed us that it was intentional. You wanted him to fail and you set him up to be a disaster. (laughs) And even then, right, he uses kind of loaded terms there, a dynamic quarterback. The implication there is that Justin Fields is a quarterback who's capable of being immediately, he's currently capable of being successful in the NFL. It's an assumption that he is making. And I mean, there might have also been, who knows what conversations were going on in the sideline. Maybe he had the Bears offensive line coming off the field and saying, there could be 50 of us and we can't stop them. The last talking point I had, I think, for the NFL is after this week, well, you still have the Cowboys and Eagles game that we have not watched yet, but assuming this is not part of it, who is the best team in the NFL right now? No one. <laughs> I don't if you think... had to make a list, if you had to make a list, no, who is number one, Eddie? <laughs> it's, it, but it's actually a fair point, right? Because so many teams have overachieved in one game, underachieved in another, and then played competently in one, for example, like the Saints or the Packers or the Patriots. Like so many have had, I, I mean, I might say the Rams at the moment. I, I, I think they have been probably the standout at the moment in terms of like dominant performances and also beating good teams as well. So I'd pick the Rams, but there's so many teams at the moment that have just had an up and down game and then a competent game, for example, and then they've gone two and one. Yeah. I mean, I think after maybe week five, I'll be able to say who I think the best team is, but I think I would create, I could create a tier right now. And put a couple teams in the first tier, but I don't think I could. I'm not. I'm not confident enough to say it because I'm going to pick a team as the best team, and they're going to lose next week. And and that's great. I mean, and you know, it's always everyone wants parity in sports. It's not a bad thing, but I don't think there is a standout team. I don't know if there will be over the course of the season. I don't think any team should have sort of prohibitive Super Bowl odds. Part of me still feels so like the I, Chiefs. If I ask you to put together a power rankings, you choose not to participate. Is that what you're telling me? This would be my thing. If I was on ESPN right now, I would. This would be my hot take. I would just group a bunch of teams at the top of my power ranking, and then the power rankings would start at seven. If I had to put a team number one right now, I think it has to be the Rams in a power ranking, just from having just beaten the Bucks. They beat the Bucks pretty handily too. It wasn't close game so i think from that re- for that reason you have to put them at number one but i don't putting them number one in a power ranking system is different from me saying i think they're the best team in the nfl because i need to see I, I there's also this element with the rams where we've seen them be amazing in regular seasons before under sean mcveigh 
I mean, particularly the one season when they were went to the Super Bowl and their offense just looks unstoppable until it stops. And I'm always going to have that doubt in my mind until I see them win a Super Bowl with that approach. And I think that's, that's part of the issue why I don't feel comfortable putting them as a clear number one. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think the Rams deserve to be number one right now, but it's still very early to tell. Next week could be a better indicator when they play the undefeated 3-0 Cardinals. So that could be a, a nice yeah. matchup for next week. Hmm. That also I mean, w- could be a nice matchup for MVPs. Kyler Murray yeah. versus Stafford. Yeah, maybe. If the Rams go 14-3... and three, and Stafford continues to play the way he's playing. Does he deserve to be MVP? Taking a team that was a second-tier team to now being one of the best in the NFL, and the only thing they've really I mean, changed is him? It's impossible for me to answer in a vacuum where I don't know what anyone else achieved. <laughs> you know, are the Broncos... <laughs> no, no, no. Are... Everyone, everyone stayed exactly what they were. What do you want to know? Und- Stafford. <laughs> are, are the Broncos undefeated? No, they didn't you know? make the playoffs. I told you that already. Have the Bills lost another game? Yes, the Bills lost four games. Did they beat the Cardinals in their divisionals? The Rams go undefeated against the Cardinals. Has anyone thrown for more yards than Stafford in this scenario? Yes. Tom Brady. <laughs> Wait, okay. And what's the Bucks record? The Bucks have three losses as well. <laughs> oh, oh, then Tom Brady would be MVP. I mean, odds-wise, they're all basically identical. So like Stafford, Mahomes, Murray, Brady. Stafford's 13-2, to Brady's 8-1. to So you can kind of throw a blank. I, I don't think Brady. Tom Brady will be NFL MVP. I'm just saying the scenario in which Frank has created, I think Tom Brady wins the MVP. <laughs> If you can tell me that at the end of the year, the Buccaneers have lost two more games and Tom Brady is top of the leading the NFL in passing yards, then I I would have him as odds-on favorite to win the MVP. Stafford's Uh, number two, though, in that scenario. Doesn't matter. It's Tom Brady. He's 44, leading leading the league in passing yards, coming off as Super Bowl champion. He's winning it. The, the really interesting race, I guess, is going to be Rookie of the Year. Can they just not have a winner this year? I don't know. <laughs> like, and I, I know well, that there's players in other positions making a big impact, but it yeah. you know it does it it's, does hurt the class when all of the quarterbacks start to fail. It's a shame when people like Burrows obviously played like a few games, got injured because this is for all intents and purposes their rookie season, right? But obviously they don't get categorized as such. I mean, you have Jamar Chase. Right now, he's got to be the front runner for the Bengals. He's got, I think, four, five touchdowns in three games yeah. as a receiver who couldn't catch a ball in preseason <laughs> and now can't seem to miss. <laughs> yeah. But no, there's some good games actually looking ahead to yeah, next week. Really I know we'll ones. do our picks on the next episode, but, you know, I mean, for the NFC West, right? Rams, Cardinals, Niners, Seahawks. At the same time, that's the Seahawks, right? We talked about big winners and losers. The Seahawks could be end up being one of the big losers because if they lose that game to the Niners, they're in big trouble in terms of the, their chances of making the playoffs. They're done. 
it would be very Pete Carroll-ish to win this game, is all I will say. Now, we didn't really talk about it, but I guess we have to do, we do have to mention, though, the Justin Tucker field goal, right? Like, you can't can't get through reacting to this week and not talk about someone kicking a record-breaking, game-winning field goal that, I mean, it's strange because when he lined up to kick it, I gave him no chance in watching it. It just seemed unkickable. Then when he kicked it, when it left his foot and it was headed towards the uprights, it was like, oh, this thing is going to sail through. Like his reaction too, from when he hit it, he looked very confident. So there was that moment of thinking, okay, this is, wow, this is going through. Then it hits the crossbar and you have to, at that moment, you think there's no way it's going in having hit the crossbar and somehow did. I mean, incredible achievement. It was crazy. When I watched it live on the bench right before my hockey game, I actually brought my phone with me to the warm up for the hockey game because that drive and the Chiefs drive was going on. So I was like, I got to watch this. And when it bounced off of the crossbar, I didn't know, like you couldn't tell what happened from the angle. And then you just saw the place erupted. And then, and then I was like, wait, what? And then you realize that it bounced and went, you know, over the uprights instead went, of bouncing and going. It went super high too off the bounce. Yeah. It was a big bounce it took. It was it was cool. It was it's a neat way to get the record, I think. It makes it it makes the record um I don't know, like just that much more unique because people will never forget that kick. Like, oh yeah, you know the NFL record, that sixty six yarder? Oh yeah, all right, that's the one that it hit the upright and went over. Oh, that was crazy for the game winner. It's it's a good kick to have as the record. I also it's think memorable. it's good that it was a game. I think it was good that it was a game winner. I mean, it would have been an impressive no matter what, but say contrast it with the Cardinals attempting it at the end of a half in a game that they went on to win by, you know, nearly 20 points, or whatever the final score was. That's a very different way to break the record versus thinking, okay, not the most important game that Justin Tucker will ever play in and not the game that decides what the outcome of the Ravens season will be, but still in a tight division, they need wins. And so a game that you would have expected them to have won fairly easily, it was an important win for them. It's cooler that it was a game winning field goal and not just, Hey, we're up by 30. Why don't we run Justin Tucker out there and see if he can get this one. Is that, is that going to become a well, not a problem? But in the same way that they um, in golf, you know, they put the tee back because golfers are just monstering it now. We're four yards off. Sorry, three yards off. Right? It was six. No, sixty six. We're four yards off. Someone having a solid shot from the halfway line here. <laughs> like it's at what at what point does it then become? Uh, like I don't really know about like the progression of kicks. I did see the stat though that. The Lions lost to a record-breaking field goal once before in the 70s, and that was 63 yards. So it's not like it's taken 50 years to do three yards. It's obviously just some people are just kind of freaks for their time, but inevitably the trend is upwards, right? So are we going to have a problem here with the size of the pitch or just the fact that... 
No, because the thing that's going to stop you is the trajectory you have to hit the ball at. And it's the height of the people in front of you. It's the getting blocked. That's the big issue, the further away you go and the trajectory that it has to leave your foot at. So that's what's going to be the limitation on the distance that you can hit a field goal from. The, I, I mean, I, so I don't think the record will be broken. We're never going to see people hitting 85 yard field goals, but we are going to see more and more kickers hitting high fifties, low 60 yard field goals. And most teams are going to then feel comfortable. Okay. We're at the, we're at, we're on and around the halfway line. We can try and win the game from here, which going back to the idea of the 37 second game winning drive, it's going to change it a lot when the other team thinks we need 25 yards. Like that's from, you know, if, if we have a touchback and we get 25, 30 yards, we feel pretty comfortable, which is basically what the Ravens did in that game. It does change the dynamic a lot. Yeah. It's just, and it's always funny because you have that juxtaposition where they can make a 66 game yard winning field goal, but then a week before the Vikings missed, what was that? A 33 yarder for the win. So it's, it, that's always the thing mm-hmm. that baffles me about kicking is you still see, it again, like we talk about it every year, the extra points. I mean, the, the chargers that could have been costly. They missed that one at the end to make it a six point game instead of a seven. And even though we just argued about whether the chiefs had enough time, had they scored, they lose that game because of a missed extra point. It's crazy. Now, I guess we were talking about which team is the best in the NFL. The conversation about which team is the best in the Premier League got a little bit more interesting after the weekend. Frank, you and I spoke about going into it, how it felt like certainly not a a must-not-lose game for City if they wanted to keep pace with Chelsea. I don't think it was must-win, but it would have been... The gap would have started to feel pretty big had they lost. Instead... It was about as emphatic as a 1-0 victory I think you'll ever see. It was, they were in complete control. I mean, they battered them. It should have been 4 or 5-0. Which, my big takeaways from it were, we kind of, it didn't change my opinions opinion of either team, which is we know when things click for City, they're pretty unplayable. And on Saturday, things clicked for them. But also for Chelsea, it was the kind of anti-football approach, which when it doesn't work, really looks bad. Because, I mean, even after they were 1-0 down, it looked like they looked like they were settling for losing 1-0. It was very bizarre. Like they didn't seem to try to get back into the match. Bar one Lukaku disallowed goal, rightfully disallowed. They never looked threatening. It was very, very strange. Yeah, the only takeaway I had, I'll let you guys talk about, I was going to say, you know, we talked about how it was kind of a must not lose for City, but someone should have told Chelsea it was still a must show up because they didn't even seem to be on the pitch for half of that game. That was, that was bad. It was, it was, it was limp. Considering how, like you've said, that there was, there was direction to be had from that game. Like we've had enough games now to understand a type of direction. I think we even said it like last season for Man City when they're about 10 or 11 in. And we said like there was a moment where they had to change it and they changed it and lo and behold, just went on to pretty much become unplayable. But interesting, right? You've got like Man U obviously slipped up against Villa as well. 
Um, you would say that Liverpool slipped up against Brentford because there was points to be had there. So um, I'm not going to talk about Arsenal. <laughs> we just we won't talk about the Arsenal. We can briefly mention the Arsenal match, but we're not going to mention it when we're talking about teams who can win the title. <laughs> oh, overreaction! Arsenal Bengals double. Is we can <laughs> we can finish our discussion about City and Chelsea and the title race, and then we can talk about mid-table teams winning matches. <laughs> You're, no such one will remember. You're such a twat. You're such a for being able to provide like the, <laughs> the surrounding context of what I'm about to say. But um, no, it it it's obviously what was interesting about that game for me was actually hearing the Emirates Stadium sound. Like Wait, a hold on a second. Stadium. I said we're not talking Stop. about that yet. Stop trying to <laughs> I'm, do it. I'm allowed Stop. to do it for let's, the North London Dark. Let's finish hey, let's, North no, London Sam, Dark. let's finish the reaction to what was the most important game of the weekend, and then we can talk about the North London Derby. But I thought most I thought the most telling thing was the reaction also of the city players after the victory. They really enjoyed it, you could tell. I think it did two things. The first was it got rid of... Chelsea have had a bit of a hoodoo over City in recent years. Obviously, the the Champions League final and then also the FA Cup semifinal. I think there's an element of being able to get rid of that. But also, I think for City, that felt like a statement win. And you could tell from their reaction that it kind of... Maybe they got a little bit of their swagger back over the course of those 90 minutes, whereas they had had the disappointment of ending last season by losing the Champions League final and then starting this season with two matches where they've dropped points. I think that was... It felt like a momentum shift, which is, you know, we're, what, six matches into the season and there are five teams on 13 points and... Liverpool top on 14 so it's not as if they've there's any gap appearing but it did feel as a little bit like that we could get to the end of the season and, and point to this match and say that's when things started to change it also just took a bit of the heat off Guardiola's recently like fan exchange as well I think I, I think it's easy to focus on things off the pitch when it's not going well on the pitch so I think for City just to kind of have that return to form just means that that kind of fan v Guardiola thing, even though it was very like cordial, it's just kind of been swept under as well. So yeah, I think I think that helped. I think it was a pretty, like you say, I think it it's not the result itself isn't the statement when you're not going to remember that and go one nil. That was incredible. But right now it was the dominance of that performance that truly matters. And now. Before we move on to the North London Derby, I just want to say I have to abandon one of my preseason predictions already, which is I thought Norwich would stay up. And I'm just going to go ahead and say they're relegated. <laughs> it's six games into the season, but I'm just going to say they're relegated. And I genuinely have to ask the question, is there a chance that they could break the record for the fewest number of points in a Premier League season, which currently stands at 11? Derby County did that in 2000. Eight, I think it was. Every time I hear it, it's more special. The 11 And points. they're currently sitting on a whopping zero. Zero. So they need 12 more to break the record, which is just four wins. They don't need which 12 when you more. They need 12. They don't have yeah. anything to add to more. <laughs> yeah. um, there's always one candidate in a season, right? 
but Norwich so far look like one of the best candidates for it. Um, I don't know but, what their run is recently, or like for well, the next like five or six. But so I mean, they haven't necessarily had the easiest start to the season. So they lost. I can to, tell you what they have next. Uh, yeah, but they lost to know. Liverpool on the opening day of the season, or no, they lost to was it Newcastle on the opening day of the season. Then they lost to Liverpool. Then they lost to City. They've lost to Arsenal and Leicester. And then they lost to Watford and Everton. Next they have Burnley, then, which will be... Yeah. That's a big test. If they've got zero points coming out of that match with Burnley, then I wouldn't say that 11 points is seriously in play because that is a pathetic turn. Like At some point, you just pick up results. You know, you get you scrap a win that you didn't deserve. You get a couple of draws that you maybe didn't deserve, and suddenly at Christmas you've got eight points, and it's unimaginable that you only pick up three points in the second half of the season. So, I don't know. I don't think they'll break the record, but it would be would be interesting. Do you think they clear twenty? No. I I mean, be, before the Christmas break, they have. Newcastle, Leeds. I'm trying to see if there's anyone else really low. And Burnley, I guess, right? So you have to get points from those three. If they go into the break still with zero, (laughs) they're done. Yeah. And also, right, they're following this. I think when they were last relegated, they lost their last eight or nine matches in a row. So they have a Premier League losing streak that's something like 15 or 16 matches at this point. So that also doesn't make for great reading, even if they manage to get promoted between those two sequences. All right, now let's turn our attention to Arsenal, who had their best result of the season. They beat Spurs 3-1, basically killed the game off in the first, what was it, half an hour they were 3-0 up? And... Yeah, congratulations, Sam. I mean, when Arsenal got kind of pumped in those three games, you know, Brentford, Man City, Chelsea, we looked at that kind of like five or six that they had after. And there was the toughest game in the middle of it was Spurs. And obviously we were talking about that Spurs game after Spurs won the first three. Um, It's great to see Arsenal win that game and obviously the previous two before that, but the important thing for Arsenal now is to win the next two as well because they're winnable. Uh, I think it's Brighton and maybe Palace, I think, for are the next two. So it's it's really important that Arsenal win those games. Um, but as much as Arsenal were good, and Arsenal were very good, and there were some slight formation changes in there that made a lot of sense, Spurs were just abjectly poor. Like they, look, they, they looked... Really, really clueless. I mean, it's kind of worth remembering though that Arsenal did almost try their best, <laughs> so it needed that incredible Ramsdale save at the end to not make it three-two. And then you think for like three or four minutes, there's a big problem. Uh, but on the whole, about Arsenal fully deserved the win. Spurs look really poor though. I mean, what a transitional change between the two North London clubs, right? You've got Arsenal didn't score. Zero points, first three games. Spurs win the first three. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're talking about six games. Let's talk about transition. No, I know, change. but I'm just saying. There's like, not some massive transformation from three matches to three matches, but you're big, right. It's a, it's a big flip in fortunes and also yes. just perceptions of what people are talking about at the club. Like, the, 
the thing I don't get is Nuno was an attacking manager with Wolves. And yet he's gone to Spurs and somehow managed to make them more defensive than they were under Mourinho. Yeah. I don't I don't understand it. But also, Kane, no one's shooting. At, at, at what was it? They they went into that game against Arsenal with the lowest shot count in the league or something like that, or one of them anyway. And that just that blows my mind when you've got the people that he has to to have them so defensively focused or minded that they're not even they're not even hitting the target. I genuinely feel sorry for Harry Kane. I mean that yes. honestly. I feel I feel really sorry for him. This is and awful. I what you know what bothered me a little bit was after the City Chelsea match in the immediate the kind of post match on Sky or or BT Sport. It was BT Sport, I guess. We're doing, and they said, "Oh, look, this is." Everyone said that City needed Kane to beat big teams, and look, they got. They managed to win 1-0, Jesus. And it's like, yeah, Jesus scored. He played well, Jesus, but he scored a goal that took a massive deflection. They created countless chances, and on the break looked like they were going to always create a chance and score. And one of your takeaways could be, look, they don't need someone up front to be there hanging around the penalty spot and finishing off these chances because they won 1-0. The other one was, well, that was actually kind of close to finishing 0-0 had it not been for that deflection. And then just that deflection has made made everyone in the post-match analysis go, see, they didn't need him. If it had finished, no one would have gone, oh, they're crying out for Harry Kane because it created a ton of chances. They haven't finished any of them. And Harry Kane must be looking at it thinking he would have had a hat-trick against Chelsea if he'd been playing for City, which he probably would have done. Yeah, I agree. And also, I, I bet Levy or whoever would have given Kane some assurances about like the team or what's happening or the setup there and uh, whatever's happened. He's he been he so probably said, sure. don't worry, we won't be as defensive as we were under Mourinho. Yeah. And then quietly whispered, there'll be more. <laughs> yeah, won't be as defensive. <laughs> Or like Levy's got like his fingers crossed behind his back as he's saying yeah. it to Kane. Just like really childish. Yeah. yeah. Be interesting. I mean, the big news though, right? Sam and I are going to see each other in person in, you know, three days. Be the first time that any of us have seen each other in person since we started doing this podcast, which is actually kind of a crazy thing to say. Yeah. Wow. You jealous? Where are you guys going to see each other? A bathhouse. <laughs> you guys are renting a house in bath yeah now it will be in paris sam is coming over for the ark you know the greatest what is set to be the greatest arc in in the history of the arc and maybe <laughs> the greatest race in the history of horse racing but and we'll obviously preview that on thursday which by then at least will also give us a better sense of what the weather will be like Still trying to get our media passes. So if you're out there listening and you, you do have anything to do with French horse racing media passes, they are ignoring my emails. It is tremendously frustrating. <laughs> that is, you are crying out for the most specific person. <laughs> I know who the person is. I've added a couple people on LinkedIn. I've filled in all the necessary forms. We qualify on for, based on all the standards that they set out. Just won't respond to me. Don't like it. And I know where the media center is. I'll just go and complain on the day. 
listen to my podcast. You just kind of tap into the broadcasting system. I just hold my phone up on the glass window. It's all glass window for so two hours. <laughs> Look, we what we say gets recorded. I know you, Eddie. You'll definitely go and complain. You'll 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 schedule in that time in your day to make well, sure actually, you the have media... at least twenty minutes to complain. Well, I do know exactly. I do know exactly where the media center is at Longshore, and it's actually. It's you walk by it when you go from the finish line to the paddock. So I don't need to schedule any time. I'm going to walk by it at least seven times. Well, I guess not much of a spoiler alert, but I one of the talking points for the arc is St. Mark's Basilica is officially out now that he's been retired. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not been a couple, not been a good couple of weeks for Bally Doyle. Uh, and it's weird, right? Because the quote regarding St. Mark's Basilica's retirement is that it's maybe the best horse they've ever had. Which was a strong statement. Yeah. Yeah, possibly the best we ever had in Bally Doyle was the quote. So, it's unfortunate. Although it's tough to say because it's still not even through RPR ratings. It's not even the number one in, in the nation right now so it's a it's a tough sell i think but yeah it'll be but i'll save all of my thoughts tips for for thursday we'll do a nice runner by runner guide all right well i guess we'll just have to wait till thursday until then i'll talk to you boys later see ya cheerio